0: THE SOUTH SEAMAN by Louis Beck. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE SOUTH SEAMAN AN INCIDENT IN THE SEA STORY OF AUSTRALIA On the 22nd of July, 1828, the Sydney South Seaman, indefatigable, eleven days out of the port of Conception in Chile, was at latitude seventeen degrees south and about one hundred twenty-seven degrees east longitude, six hundred miles distant from the nearest land, the then-almost-unknown Paumatu group, which Cook had well named the Dangerous Archipelago. Five years before, the brig was named the Calder, and was then commanded by Captain Peter Dillon, a famous officer in the East India Company's service his name is interwoven with the sea story of australia as the commander of the company's ship research and the discoverer of the relics of the gallant and ill-fated la perouse whose ships were wrecked on vanikoro island in the new Hebrides group in 1788 when the Calder was under the command of captain dillon she was a crack indian trader to port jackson but newer and smarter vessels drove her out of the trade and in 1828 she was owned by mr john duncan an english merchant of valparaiso who for this present voyage had loaded her with wheat for sydney and sent her to sea under the command of mr joseph hunter after changing her name to indefatigable the first and second mates of the brig were europeans as also were two or three of the crew the rest were chilenos picked up at the last moment of sailing the steward was a bengali a man devoted to his captain, with whom he had long sailed in other seas. The Chilenos were not alone lazy and incompetent seamen, not fit to keep a lookout nor take the wheel in rough weather, but what was worse, they were treacherous scoundrels, as ready for murder with their long, ugly sheath knives as British merchant sailors are with their fists for honest fighting. Naturally enough, with such men as these, The mates frequently quarrelled, and on one or two occasions the officers were driven to resort to blows to maintain proper discipline, and a Chileno, or any other Spanish South American, never forgives a blow, though a knife thrust or a pistol shot in the dark would not be considered anything else than proper to vindicate wounded honour. But the mates of the indefatigable were simple-minded, rough British seamen. They wanted the Chilenos to walk the ship like sailor men should walk a ship. The Chilenos hated walk of any kind, and especially hated the steady discipline of this English merchant ship, the officers of which, when necessity demanded it, would rout out the watch below and send them aloft to shorten sail. And so, in less than a week from the day the brig sailed from conception, mutiny and murder was plotted in the forecastle by the Chilenos but none of the Englishmen on board had any thought of danger. Mr. Loftgreen, the chief mate, had the middle watch. It was a marvellously clear and starlight night, with just enough wind astern to keep the brig's light canvas full and give her steerage way. As the officers slowly paced the short poop, he, with difficulty, resisted the soothing lullaby of the murmur of the water as it rippled past the ship's side. On the forecastle, one of the Chileno sailors, named Antonio Mancillo, kept the watch, and just as Loftgren, overcome by the stillness of his surroundings, had stopped his walk and was leaning on the rail at the break of the poop, almost dozing, good seaman as he was, he heard the Chileno cry out sharply, "'There is an island close ahead. Come forward, Senor Loftgren." The maid ran hastily forward, but as she reached the short ladder which led to the topgallant forecastle, two Chilenos, each carrying a cutlass, sprang upon and seized him by the arms, while Mancillo held the point of a knife to his throat. "'Ha! you English dog! If you speak, you die now. We shall kill you,' said one of the mutineers in a fierce whisper. Loftgreen, a tough, wiry young fellow, struggled desperately, and freeing his right arm, struck one of the Chileños a blow that sent him down as if he had been shot and cried out loudly murder mutiny mansillo meanwhile making savage thrusts at him with his knife and the other men trying to run him through with a cutlass but the mate unarmed as he was was able to cope with them both for tripping up mansillo he struck him on the chest so violently that he fell against the man with a cutlass then the mate took to his heels and ran aft, calling loudly for assistance. The disturbance so far had scarcely lasted two minutes, and those of the ship's company who were not on deck knew nothing of what had happened. Lodgren, notwithstanding that he was wounded and bleeding in the right arm, and half-dazed from a somewhat severe cut on the head, succeeded in reaching his cabin, where he seized a pair of pistols, and still crying loudly to his sleeping fellow-officers, prepared to defend himself to the last unfortunately his pistols were not loaded and in his hurry and confusion he could not find his bullet-bag just then the begali steward awakened by the noise came running up the companionway and was met by one of the mutineers the helmsman who struck him to the deck by a blow on the shoulder from a cutlass captain hunter awakened from his slumber by the stamping of feet and the outcry guessed what had happened Quickly seizing his pistols and buckling on his sword in those days merchant captains always possessed swords, for they had use for them sometimes he ran out of his cabin just as the mutineers reached the door. He discharged both pistols together, but unfortunately was too excited to take aim, and neither shot had any effect. But for a little while he kept the Chileans at bay with his sword until, covered with woods, he staggered. In an instant, one of them darted in upon him and a cutlass was thrust through his heart. Then the mutineers again turned their attention to the gallant mate, who was unable to get out of his cabin, one of the attacking party having turned the key from the outside. The cabin lamp had been knocked over in the struggle, and the darkness made the mutineers careful of their movements, for they were afraid that Loftgreen might force his door and burst out upon them, and after a hurried discussion they ran on deck. Meanwhile Mr. Todd, the second mate, aroused by the cries and shots in the main cabin, jumped out of his bunk, and, trying to open his cabin door, found it was fastened from the outside. Throwing himself against it, he burst it open at the same moment as the wounded steward crawled past upon his hands and knees. Unable to speak, the Bengali placed a cutlass in the officer's hands and pointed to the hacked and bleeding body of the dead captain, just discernible in the darkness. Todd at once secured Hunter's pistols and Loftgreen at the same moment burst the door of his cabin and came out, and the two men, who had no time for words, prepared to sell their lives dearly, believing that those of the crew, who might have been loyal, had been slaughtered. For some minutes they stood waiting in the darkness, and heard no sound but the moans of the steward, who was fast weakening from loss of blood. Then came a sudden rush down the companionway, and the Chilenos, with savage cries, were upon them. Poor Loftgreen's pistols were in bad order and missed fire, and although the two men fought desperately with their empty weapons, they were soon overpowered, and with a steward, were taken on deck, and lashed to the poop's tensions. Exhausted and bleeding profusely, they presently saw some of the mutineers emerge from the cabin, dragging with them Captain Hunter's body, which they at once threw overboard. Before these events had taken place, the Chileans had quietly secured the fore scuttle buttoning down the carpenter, cook, and three other European seamen, so that even before Lofgren was attacked, the ship was practically in the hands of the six mutineers, for the man at the wheel was one of their number. Leaving the two officers and the steward guarded by two men, the remaining four mutineers, after heaving to the brig, went below to the blood-stained cabin and breaking open the spirit locker began a carousal which lasted some hours to the accompaniment of music on Monsieur's guitar they took care however to relieve the two sentinels and kept themselves sober enough to shorten sail if it became necessary at a daylight after giving all their prisoners food the mutineers held a consultation as to their future proceedings and at noon in pursuance of their design they hoisted out the long boat and placed in her a couple of breakers of water, a bag of biscuit, and a few pieces of salt meat. Then Lofgren and the second mate were liberated and the former taken below. Seated at the cabin table were Mansillo and three of his fellow ruffians. As soon as the chief officer entered, Mansillo rose and drawing a loaded pistol from his belt he pointed to a large sheet of paper lying on the table and ordered loftgren to make a rough chart showing the course and distance to the nearest land adding you see that we have now got this brig you are the only man on board who can navigate here you must stay with us for we want you to sail the ship to manila the other men we shall put in the longboat, and this chart you will draw will be good enough for them to reach the nearest land the nearest land "'Good God! It is inhabited by ferocious cannibals who will eat them. "'You cannot be so inhuman,' said the mate. "'Mansillo laughed cruelly. "'Let them be eaten. I so much the better for us. "'When they are dead, they cannot talk. "'Then let me share their fate. I—' "'The leader of the mutineers placed the muzzle of his pistol against Lothgren's chest. "'Be silent, you damned English dog. Be silent and do what I tell you.' or by the holy virgin i kill you thereupon the maid notwithstanding his wounded arm and with his thoughts distracted by the fate before him not only made a good chart but he did more for it suddenly flashed upon him that in all probability neither mansillo nor any of his fellow ruffians could read english so after finishing the drawing he turned to mansillo and said mr Todd is an ignorant man and this chart will be of no use to him unless i can give him directions how to steer will you let me do so no answered the mutineer quickly you must not speak to him again nor to any of the others as you will poor fellows i can do no more but at least i can write on the back of the chart and tell mr Todd the prevailing directions of the winds the courses to be steered and the name of the least savage of the islands he can make for Then, coolly turning the chart over, he scribbled a few lines upon it. "'There,' he said. "'Read that. You will see that that can do no harm.' Mansilla looked critically at the writing for a few minutes, and Lofgren's heart thumped against his ribs as he watched. Then a sigh of relief burst from him as the mutineer spoke. "'We are not murderers, and do not mind for you to give the second mate the good directions.' ''But if you are lying to us, we shall have your life for it.'' These were the words he had written. ''Not allowed to speak or write. Coast the islands. All are dangerous till you reach Otaheite. I am forced to navigate the mutineers to Manila. I will try to retake the ship, as I think I can gain over Jose and the cook, and then make for Otaheite. Have patience and trust in God always.'' loftwin was then again placed in irons and one of the mutineers stood sentry in the cabin over him while monsillo and the rest were on deck and set about disposing of the remaining prisoners mr Todd was the first man ordered into the boat which had now been lowered and brought alongside then monsillo handed him the chart and a compass here said the mutineer we give you fine chart just made for you by the mate." you see he has right out for you your course so you will soon make the land then he added with a grin is not antonio mancillo your damn good fellow eh poor Todd looked at the chart and then at the writing at the back of it and miserably anxious and dejected as he was he found it hard to resist smiling at the clever way in which his fellow-officer had got to windward of the chileno however he pulled a long face and said there was mighty little chance of reaching anywhere but a savage island with such a poor chart as that what he added angrily is the good of this writing we could find a cannibal island without this and he contemptuously flung the chart into the stern-sheets of the boat then one by one the wounded steward the carpenter and a swedish seaman whose name is not recorded Were brought on deck and forced at the point of cutlasses to enter the boat which was then cast adrift. As the boat dropped astern, Mansilla ran up a flag of some description, and the remaining mutineers gathered on the poop and jeered at Todd and his companions, their insulting cries and mocking words reaching the ears of the half-maddened Lothrin in the cabin, and reminding him that he was alone and at the mercy of utter scoundrels, with any one of whom his life was not worth a moment's purchase. But although they were not manacled, the second mate and his companions in the boat, were in little better plight, for their distance from the nearest land they could hope to make was nearly six hundred miles. But Todd was no faint heart. Better the open sea, my lads, he said, than the brig in those damned Spanish cutthroats. We are at least free men. Poor Mr Lovedgreen, I fear, will be murdered then after dressing the steward's wound a cutlass slash which had severed the collar-bone he ordered the sail to be hoisted and took the tiller this done he steered a due west course which according to the mate's chart would bring them to the easternmost of the foe a group of low-lying islands almost unknown in those days except to american whale-ships in the boat were sufficient biscuits salt beef and water to last them with great economy for a fortnight the boat itself was a good one and they were provided with a compass and a course to be steered the men were on good terms with each other and loyal and submissive to their officer so they had much to be thankful for and their chief sorrow in leaving the brig was their fears for the safety of loftgreen who had always been a kind and considerate officer For fifteen days the boat sailed before light breezes, till on August the seventh they made Tavere Island in the Paumotus archipelago, named by Cook Resolution Island, after his ship, almost in the centre of the vast group, having passed without sighting them many other low-lying atolls which lay in the course of the starboard hunt. To their joy, the brown-skinned natives of Tavere behaved very kindly to them, for several whale-ships and later on the missionaries of the london missionary society's ship had visited their island and the people were well disposed to white men the island afforded but little in the way of food only fish pigs coconuts and the coarse species of taro but of this the people were profuse in their presence to the white men On remaining a day and a night at taveray todd bade farewell to the amiable natives and continued on his course, sighting many other islands of the group, but calling at none. Then came a heavy gale from the south, and he had to let the boat run right before it to the north. The sea was short and lumpy, and only continuous bailing kept her from filling. Early on the morning of the fifteenth further misfortunes overtook them. A sudden squall sprang the mast, although the sail was close-reefed then the rudder gurgens carried away and the boat broached to and shipped a heavy sea which with other damage tore the compass from the afterthought where it had been placed and completely smashed and rendered it useless a few hours later however the weather cleared the gale died away and the gentle south-east trade again breathed upon them the evening they made Anah chain island the natives of which, owing to previous association with South Seamen, as whaling and trading ships were then called, were very good to them. At Anna, Todd and his comrades, remained for two days, and, on the morning of the twentieth day, they sighted the noble outlines of Tahiti, the garden of the South Pacific. Here they thought their troubles were ended, for the natives of Tahiti were known to not only be friendly to white men, but Christianized as well. But as soon as the sea-worn men approached the beach, numbers of canoes filled with natives armed with muskets put off, and surrounding the boat made the white men prisoners. Greatly alarmed at this proceeding, which was such a contrary reception to what they had expected from the Tahitians, Tord at first imagined he had lost his reckoning and arrived at some strange island. But some of the natives spoke a little English, and very soon their conduct was explained to the white men. Some months previously a party of escaped convicts had arrived at the island in a small schooner, which they had seized at Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania. In bringing the vessel to an anchor, the convicts lost her on the reef, and their lives had been saved by the Tahitians. The strangers were hospitably received, but their degraded natures were soon made evident. They broke into a chief's house, stole food, arms, and ammunition placed them in a boat belonging to the local white missionaries and ran away with her a party of tahitians gave chase and were fired upon by the convicts who killed four of their number and badly injured their canoe so that the remainder had the greatest difficulty in reaching the land again Todd and his companions were thought to be another party of convicts and the queen chiefs of the island gave orders that they should be kept close prisoners But this additional misfortune was soon over, for as the boat escorted by the canoes entered Papeete harbour, Mr. Todd saw lying at anchor the London South Seaman Tiger, Captain Richards. This vessel had been at conception at the same time as the indefatigable, and the officers of each ship had met. In the course of an hour or so, Todd saw Captain Richards, and told his story and then the misunderstanding with the Daetians was cleared up and the second mate and his companions supplied with every comfort. A week later, the tiger sailed for Sydney, taking the four men with her. Meanwhile, what had become of the indefatigable, and how fared poor Lofgren with the mutineers? As soon as the longboat was clear of the brig, the mutineers released the mate. We now want the brig navigated to Guam, one of the Landrone islands, said Mansillo to Loftgreen. I am captain now, and you must do as I bid you. Beware of a mistake. If you take the ship out of your course, we will serve you as we served Captain Hunter. So the voyage, which lasted until the 12th of December, began. The life led by the men in the long boat was easy enough compared with the terrible months of mental torture endured by the unfortunate mate. Only that fine weather prevailed the whole time. The brig would most surely have been lost, for the mutineers were utterly without discipline, and would only furl or set or trim the sails, just as the humour took them. Every night Love was put in irons and left to himself till daylight. There was a considerable supply of wine and spirit on board, and four out of the six chilians were continuously drunk then these four vowed that it was essential to the success of their enterprise that loftgren should be murdered the two men who did not drink were more prudent ruffians and knew that without their navigator they were helpless and so they protected him very often loftgren who had a fair knowledge of spanish had to stand in the midst of the chilenos whilst he was taking observations and listen to them debating as to whether they should take his life at once or spare him until they reached guam and it was only the heroic resolve to save the ship for his owners that prevented him from trying to escape in a small quarter-boat or attempting to kill the mutineers in their sleep and let the brig drift about the pacific till he was sighted by another ship he soon found out that the mutineers had no idea that Guam was actually settled by the Spaniards. It is probable that they knew that Guam was owned by Spain, but no doubt thought that the island was inhabited only by natives, like Saipan and Rota in the same group. One of the two mutineers, who entertained friendly feelings towards him, told him that Mansillo's idea was to sell the brick to the islanders in return for liberty to lead his ideal of life eating drinking sleeping and keeping an extensive harem on one of the many islands in the north pacific at last the brig arrived at port st Luis d'apara in guam and a native pilot brought her to an anchor one of the mutineers remarked to monsillo that he supposed they were safe but said he pointing to some houses ashore those are not native houses there are europeans living here A boat was lowered, and Mansillo, after dressing himself in Captain Hunter's best clothes, was rowed ashore by two of his fellow mutineers to see what the place was like. To their intense surprise, they found awaiting them the alcalde of San Luis, and a lieutenant and guard of Spanish soldiers. The alcalde questioned them closely as to who they were and what had brought them to Guam. Their replies did not satisfy the official, who, placing Mancillo in custody and taking half a dozen soldiers with him, made the two Chilenos row him off to the ship. On seeing the soldiers' approach, the remaining mutineers, cowards as they were, concluded that their shipmates had betrayed them, and ran below to hide themselves, leaving Mr. Lofgren on deck to receive the alcalde, who was soon in possession of the whole story. Unlike most Spanish officials, he did not want a bribe to ensure his performance of his duty. He promptly seized the indefatigable, and the Chilenos were taken ashore and marched to the fort under guard. Then the alcalde and governor, with much formality, held a court, and took the maid's evidence, the result of which was the mutineers were placed in heavy irons, and the almost heartbroken Loftgren was received in the governor's house as an honored guest and supplied with every comfort. Soon afterwards the rainbow— a british frigate commanded by captain roos put into san Luis d'apre the rainbow had made many important discoveries in australian waters more particularly on the northern coast but the name of a gallant commander will probably be longer remembered as admiral roos the famous turf patron than as captain roos the explorer and navigator mr lottgreen was received on board the rainbow as english naval officers always receive a brave and distressed merchant seaman The mutineers were handed over to the British captain for conveyance to Manila for trial. The frigate arrived at Manila on January 19th, and there the Chilenos had short shrift, for within three days they were brought to trial and duly garroted. Mr. Lotrin, who made many friends in Manila, was afforded a passage to Sydney, and the indefatigable was condemned as a prize to the Spanish government. She was afterwards lost in a typhoon in the China Sea. Such is one of the many incidents of the sea-story of Australia. End of the South Seaman by Louis Beck